0: Love,
1: talk,
0: radio. Hello, everybody, and uh, this is uh, Ursula and Anne from Be Above Leadership. It's uh, July 24th, and we just have a fascinating, wonderful topic for you today that revolves around self-love. Hello, um. Anne. Hi, Ursula.
1: And we really are here today. So those of you are loyal, you know, um, friends who tried to to listen um, a couple of days ago, our apologies for that. Great example of self-love because the truth was I massively screwed it all up. Ursula was on a plane, handed it over to me. I really didn't pay attention or have any idea really how to do it and, you know, got on there and nothing was working. And so, you know, another great Great, wonderful opportunity to um, bring self-love to failure, um, which I think is actually apropos. And one of the things that one of the titles, the title of this program is, why is it critical to consciousness? So yeah, we'll talk really about that. that. And I
0: um, want to really quickly build on the uh, general screw up of uh, you know t- on, of, of Tuesday. Um, you are absolutely right. It really was self-love. It was also for me because uh, although you were, you know, sort of in charge of this, but I never gave gave you the correct instructions or actually told you. I made these huge assumptions. But what was interesting? <laughs> yeah, it's like of course Anne knows there is a screen. No, of course she doesn't know if I unless I tell you. So it was that was kind of funny. And what I really realized in view of this call, how much forgiveness self-forgiveness mm. uh, place in this whole um, in this whole context of uh, self-love so I'm going to um, um, I know we've, we've got a couple of callers here uh, on the line today so I was thinking that we're just gonna um, have everybody be on mute for a little bit and then I'll yeah. unmute and then we can have a conversation how is that
1: that that sounds great. We'll, we're going to just talk a little bit, and then I think we'll open it up for for questions um, yes. and comments a little bit yes. further into the show. So if you've got a question, just write it down, and you know we'll maybe what we'll do is unmute people one at a time and and let you yes. ask the questions. So we'd love to have that. We'd love to have more
0: have yes. some interaction. That'd be great. So
1: mm-hmm. let's talk about this. It's a um, You know, there's some brain stuff, too. I think that, you know, I think about, boy, I'm not even sure where to enter in this conversation because it's so cool. Let me start here. Um, We were in a class recently, and uh, somebody was talking about research that they'd read that um, uh, research, or maybe it was an interview with the Dalai Lama who was saying, you know, Westerners find... Um, self compassion very hard, and why is that and so Ursula and i 've been pondering from a brain perspective it seems to be easier often for us to have compassion for you know if our clients come in with with some problem or our you know family, our friends our dear friends that we can activate empathy and compassion and say to them. Don't oh, sweetheart, you did the best you can. Don't be so hard on yourself. Like that. Whereas mm-hmm. for us when we screw up, boy, it's like get out the whip. Mhm. Yep. Absolutely. I, t- I I I hear that all the time
0: and I mean I do it as well, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, I feel I feel for this person that, you know, did that and then when, when I do it it's like, Oh, you are so stupid, Ursula. <laughs>
1: right you were you you know and we're um it's sort of like we we're afraid to we're afraid to be nice to ourselves or it's almost like we're we're a little afraid this animal will get out of control whereas what i can see is that the more we can really honestly forgive ourselves and we want to talk about in this program we want to talk about the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem because it's an important difference We are not talking about narcissism or rolling over people or thinking you're the most important person in the world. That's really a different quality, and we'll talk about that a little later, between that and actually just being kind to yourself. You know, for me... When I completely, for both of us, I guess on Tuesday, when you know, we both felt a little bad about screwing it up and I had people on Facebook saying, I can't hear you, where are you? And I'm thinking, oh, you know, <laughs> great disappointment. And um, you know, it can trigger some of this biochemical response of stress of adrenaline uh-huh. and stress uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and actually can even send, as we've talked about in other calls, can send our higher brain um, a little off what we say offline. When our bodies get flooded, and flooded with adrenaline and our higher brain gets flooded with adrenaline, it doesn't think as well. So for me, the ability to have compassion and say to myself, you know what? You didn't do it on purpose. You did the best mm-hmm. you could. Let's look at what the solution is. And even, you know what, maybe it'll turn out Thursday is a better day anyway <laughs> for everybody. <Yeah. laughs> that's where I always go. I don't know if this is sort of a coping mechanism
0: over the, you know, it's a, that's sort of like where I go. It's like, well, this must be somehow perfect, so maybe
1: this is better. <laughs> right. Well, it's a, that's a very, I think, a higher consciousness way of looking at it. And I want to draw a distinction. This stuff gets subtle because there's also, we're not talking about not taking responsibility. And this wasn't a major screw-up. I mean, nobody's going to be all pissed off at us. But, you know, when we screw up, do something wrong, hurt someone else, you know, don't follow through, all of those things. We're not talking about just saying, oh, well, who cares? There's Mm -hmm. a way of, in self-compassion, I think, actually taking responsibility, but also being gentle with ourselves. So what do you make well, of that, Ursula? What do you want to yeah, say about I, that?
0: I just wanted to say that um, I think self-compassion versus uh, the more, you know, what we at Be Above would call below the line um, uh, state of, uh, you know, self-focus, self-esteem, whatever you want to call it, I think it includes us and other people it's an yeah, inclusive thing nice. so it's having it's having compassion for myself it's having compassion also for the people that are you know trying to get on the call and can <laughs> i it, it's compassion for you who you know you had to hold this responsibility and then you're sort of powerless because you don't have the right instructions and it includes uh, includes myself and yeah. um, i i want to <laughs> can i, I can i just add me.
1: something Yes, yeah, sure. Hold on I want I want I love what I just love what you're saying and I want to add something to it. That I started having an image a few years ago. I used to have this image of compassion as being something that flowed out in front of me from my heart. Like mm-hmm. this is this mm-hmm. energy coming from my heart coming to you. And a few years ago it hit me that it actually needed to come out the back. Come out from my heart toward the back, surround me, and go to others, like a Mm -hmm. heart, you know, like wings, like angel wings or something. Because when I just send it out from my heart in front of me, I don't include myself. So it's just what you were saying. So yeah,
0: absolutely. It's uh, really, um, uh, to, to be a little biblical here, it's, uh, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> please, uh, <do. laughs> please forgive me if this is not no, your train of thought, but uh, this is what comes to mind, you know, Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, when I, you know, in my coaching with clients that, that have, the, have a challenge of self-compassion, I always say, we forget the as yourself. Yeah. Yes. We go to love your neighbor. Yes. We go to service and love everyone else, and we forget this little bit uh, of love your neighbor as yourself. Do well, as you.
1: You know, I love <laughs> that because if you think that there's, you know, I mean, I don't mean to be hard on anyone, but you know, you think that there's a lot of people who don't love themselves very well. Though that is what they're bringing to their neighbor and the people around them. There, there actually are loving their neighbor as much as they love themselves which isn't very much and that's not a great state of the world we need to love ourselves honestly as well as everyone else so i want to like talk about why is this hard why does the Dalai Lama say you know in the west we don't we're not very good at self compassion what mm-hmm. is why is that so I have a few thoughts in terms of the brain, and should I start with my first, the first one that came to me? That's probably a good place yep. to start. Okay, yes. <laughs> I'll do that then. Start um, with the first. <laughs> let's start with the first. I don't know that any of these is the be-all and end-all, but we, in thinking about this, um, I have a few at least to offer out. One is that what we know about the right and left hemispheres of the brain is that the place where we have empathy is very much in the right hemisphere of the brain. The the mirror neurons for empathy, if you lose or have some deficiency in your right hemisphere, it is much more difficult to feel empathy naturally. The place where we are very separate um, is in the left hemisphere. Now, this gets sticky, so give me a little room here. Neuroscientists are fascinated with finding the seat of consciousness in the brain. And I've been looking into this in preparation for this call, and there isn't one place. They can't find it. They now are saying it's (laughs) a I know.
0: It's I'm sorry. A, you know, I have like, to laugh
1: about this. <laughs> this is funny. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. Even people with severe brain damage can still have self-awareness, awareness that, that you know, looking in the mirror and noticing themselves. Even people who have, I think it's called hydrosophilia, it's water on the brain, children, they don't live very long, can still have some degree of self-awareness even though they're missing major parts of their brain. So we're not exactly sure where it is. However, I want to point to Jill Bolte Taylor's TED Talk on mm-hmm. my stroke of insight. And the place where as her she lost a lot of her left brain, one of the things that she lost was her feeling of separation from other people, her feeling of separation from the world. So it makes sense to me that there is an aspect of the left brain that helps us be more separate and distinct. It just makes sense. And I want to just um, add something to this, and that is very
0: useful. That is very helpful, and this is something that I uh, love about uh, one of our teachers, uh, Dan Siegel, who really has pointed out that it is a good thing to to discover the difference, for example, between you and I, so that we can actually come together and, and merge and be an entity. But in order to do this, we have to be separate first.
1: Yeah, we really need that. I mean, Jill talks in her talk, and if you haven't seen it, I just point you to YouTube. It's one of the classics, one of the best ever. My stroke of insight, Jill Bolte Taylor. She has this wonderful part where she talks about as she was going through this stroke, and she was noticing what was happening in her brain. If you don't know her, she was a um, neuroanatomist, so she absolutely knew as she was losing her brain what what was happening. It's fascinating. Well, she talks about leaning against the bathroom wall, and she says, I couldn't really recognize where the wall started and I ended. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful to know that, because even as you walk in the world, we actually need to know where we are distinct. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we know we're distinct. We know we're individual. In the West, we're very individual. We're less collective than in the East. We are some people would say um, one of our teachers, Ian McGillchrist, would certainly say this is the this is the problem: is that we have elevated um, the left hemisphere to kind of godlike status. This, mm-hmm. you know, who we are being very distinction, very different in the individual in the West. Well, if we're so good at that, um, it's it's in most people. More difficult to have both hemispheres of the brain as fully activated at the same time. So we go to this individual state, and the part of us that has empathy sort of goes. and It's like being on a teeter totter. The individual mm-hmm. awareness goes up, and the empathy goes down. They're different parts of the brain. Right, and I, I
0: what really, um, what really, what makes me. Uh, so let me. I'm really, I'm really cool. What you're saying, and there's so many thoughts in my head. I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> which,
1: which side of the brain are they on? <laughs> I
0: don't know. They're everywhere. Um, what I'm wanting to say is that this separation or this 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 identity, with self, which is both good and and bad, what it really makes me think is of of the um, of this concept of self-esteem that we pointed out earlier on. Yeah. We are trying to differentiate ourselves in that state from being better than other people, while in the self-love and self-compassion, as we said earlier, it is a little different. We know where our love is, but it does include other people.
1: Yeah, really, really good, good um, point. So that's, and I, let me just sort of expand on that a little bit. So there's this problem with, when our awareness of self is so different that our compassion parts ca- can get, you know, kind of can sort of go down like on this teeter-totter. Not true for everyone, but for many people, they tend to go more to one side or the other in a certain circumstance. So, you know, I'm aware of myself, but I don't have access to this part of me that is, you know, I'm feeling separate. But I don't have access to this part of me that's interconnected and has has real compassion. Mm-hmm. And we know that the the left hemisphere, one of the things that comes with this ability to separate and separate and be be distinct, is also judgment. It's a very judgmental part of us, and that's part of discernment and you know being able to see where we want to move is to judge. So mm-hmm. you know when we get activated in the left, we bring judgment along, and that turns can really turn into self judgment so self esteem as as distinct from self compassion and um i, I hate to, i don 't want to make self esteem bad, but the research shows that sometimes self esteem can actually make people less connected to other people. And this was the problem with the self-esteem movement of kind of the 80s and 90s where we wanted all the kids to feel really good about themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, what can happen there, not always, but what can happen there, the risk is that you actually activate in the seven levels language the field of frustration, which includes a lot of pride and ego, Mm-hmm. and course, and we, we, and we, we,
0: yeah go ahead yeah sorry i just wanted to um for our listeners uh, t- two things for those of you that just have uh, dialed in we are going to um open it up for questions in just a little bit so um just hang on and write down your questions and we will we'll come to that um which, of course,
1: made me totally forget <laughs> forgot
0: what I wanted to say. Oh, okay. So just well, keep going. It'll about, come back. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll keep going with where I was going, and then we'll see if it comes back. We're talking about um, act, Oh, activating the field of pride. So if you're not familiar with all of the seven levels, you can go on beaboveleadership.com, about us, and there's some links to the seven levels, and you can see the description of this field of frustration, which includes pride and ego. Um and what happens in self-esteem is that people get locked into this place of, I feel good about myself, but what's fueling that is comparing myself to other people and putting other people down and putting myself up. Now, we know from some of David Rock's work in his scarf model, he's um, brought forth the research on status, which is the first S of his scarf model, that when we, have, when we feel like our status is higher than other people, it activates dopamine. Dopamine mm-hmm. is at the, one of our happy drugs. So <laughs> here I am. I've got, you know, I feel like I've got the better job, the better house, the better car, the better boyfriend, the better purse, whatever it is. I'm better than you. And, in fact, maybe me and my friends are talking about how much better we are than you. Well, we get little dopamine hits. Mm-hmm. That's not self-compassion. That's the energetic field of frustration and pride, and it's ultimately a destructive field. Well, it's really
0: about this. This is the comparison prison that I find mm. um, my clients and myself uh, in in the you know you you I mean I compare myself you know at at this moment in time you know being 62 and you know being semi-fit well you know I I play tennis against people that are 20 years younger and they're definitely fitter than I am and most Mm. of the time a lot cuter so this comparison prison is is a really slippery slope because it can it can give us the dopamine hit when we are actually better than or think we are better than others. But it can also really drag us down into this area of where yeah. never anything is good enough.
1: You know, that's a wonderful point. And there's a wonderful book by Tom Wolfe that was out a number of years ago called The Bonfire of the Vanities. And the main character—it's just a wonderful example of the comparison prison. That's so well said, Ursula. Um, and in it, I, the image—one of the images that sticks with me is the main character. You know, lives in New York. He's a stock trader, making oodles of money. Well, he's got this wonderful apartment, but he doesn't have the kind of apartment where the elevator opens into the apartment. He has to walk down the hall, and it just eats eats away at him. If he were really successful, he knows he would have the kind of apartment where the elevator opened into the apartment. And so no matter how high up you go, there's always someone who's higher, and you can stay trapped in this in this prison and you know the bile just sort of eats away at you and if you want a great description of that go read the bonfire of the vanities because it really shows you how you know man locked in you get and hopeless Mm. you can get in Mm. that Mm. great example so you know when i'm thinking about self-love i think this is part of the problem is that you know the place where we hold love and compassion is different than the place where we think of ourselves um, or where we seem to be more aware of ourselves, I think is just really, a, you know, one of the challenges with the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. We also know, I think, another issue around this is that the brain has a negativity bias.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to mention that to you and say, you know, what what about that? Um, and that uh, makes complete sense to me.
1: Well, you know, this is a, this is research by um oh gosh, what's his name? Rick Henson Help me out here. Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen. Oh yeah, she just like completely went out of my brain. Rick Hansen <clears throat> who wrote The Buddha's Brain and you can Google negativity bias and you'll probably see his, but he has a wonderful saying in that he says the brain is Teflon for positive experiences. Velcro for negative ones.
0: Yeah, it really it it's um, it really is. Um, if you think about uh, you know I I I I think about uh, you know being a trainer and and you know getting feedback and, and sometimes <laughs> it's in written form and there can be fifty people in the room and forty nine just love everything you know I did and said or we did and said and there's one person who's not quite in agreement and I focus on that one
1: yeah and I've you' know, on that one negative on uh, one negative one, and i 'm sure i'm hoping there are people out there who are listening on the tape who are nodding their heads and you know the reason behind this is that we are deeply programmed to survive, which is wonderful. Look at here we are we have survived we have we have kept ourselves. Mm-hmm safe. But, you know, our brain doesn't think necessarily survival is always physical survival and, you know, has to do with whether you're going to get hunted by a saber-toothed tiger or hit by a car. You know, it sees survival as all of these other things like status and connection, and it's very, very complex. And so, you know, any time that negative thing happens, it puts our brain on on alert and says, remember Mm -hmm. this, this is threatening. To either your actual survival or whoever you um, you know, who sort of your actual life or whoever you think you are, you know, mm-hmm. the survival of your persona it could be. And mm-hmm. we clue in more closely to that because it's more of a threat and it, and it protects us and so we've just evolved that way. And we absolutely need that, as you said,
0: you know, for yeah. uh, certainly for protection on a on a daily basis. But the scanning for threats happens all the time, whether we're reading emails or we're listen, <laughs> listening to a conversation. Right. That threat is alive, and you know that that it, you know I com- always compare it to a little lighthouse beam that's just going around and round in circles and looking for you know what's threatening. And um, you know, it, d- depending on your level of consciousness, again, that lighthouse beam can really be bright. And picking up yeah. on things that are not necessarily threatening, but are to be perceived to be that.
1: Yes, exactly. That maybe have to do with you know an, uh, uh, you know threatening. To, are they really threatening? Or are they just threatening to my stat? You know, my perception of status, all of that. And so, what you get with people with a strong lighthouse beam is you get hyperreactivity where you mm-hmm. actually can't say anything to them. You know, they're, we, we, what we say is you know, the more below the line you are, the more your higher brain is sort of operating on a hinge. <laughs> it's like, it's, and that's why you feel like you kind of have to walk on eggshells because mm-hmm. you don't know if you say to this person, you know, I can't make the meeting next Thursday, whether they're going to roll their eyes and be sarcastic or whether they're going to look at you and say, okay, how does Wednesday work? Mm-hmm. You know, you just mm-hmm. don't know. It's not safe to be because yes. they are hyper alert to anything that maybe doesn't go their way. So, now I want to say
0: something about yeah. uh, stress and lack of sleep and all that kind of thing. Here, um, I find that uh, my that there is a direct link for me between self co- uh, self compassion and self care. I find yeah. that I have a lot less. Uh, Capacity to have self-compassion when I'm tired or hungry or just generally stressed out. Um, I think my uh, stress response really, you know, activates reactivity, and so I have I have no compassion not only for other people but also not for myself.
1: So that makes sense. I'm nodding my head because I think about you know. At first, I was thinking, well. You know, I don't have any compassion for anybody else. It's when I'm stressed, I'm going through the airport, and I don't really care if anybody else wants to get on that plane. I want to get on it. But then I think I'm also, you know, the internal conversation that I'm having with myself isn't one of love and acceptance. It's one of, you know, uh, what we would call in CTI language more saboteur conversation and more mm-hmm. negative overall. And I think you're right. And part of this has to do with the delicate chemical balance of the higher brain. That when we're um, when we're stressed, when we're hungry, when we're tired, all of these things can mess with the chemical balance in our higher brain and take us to a place where we actually have less access. To the neural pathways of empathy for ourselves yes, or anyone yep. else. Yeah. So, no. Absolutely. Well, yeah. well said. It's one of the reasons why we've started saying, in terms of higher consciousness and effective brain states, self-care is not an option. No. I know it's you, a, you. It's essential. That. <laughs> yeah. That's, well. What do you say? It's essential. <laughs> I not say optional. it's a, it's a, it's essential, not a luxury. <laughs> That's right. Even yeah. a massage, getting your nails done, um, you know, going for a walk, uh, t- journaling—all of these things that we that sometimes we think I'll do that when I've got everything else under control—they're actually essential to helping us stay in the most productive, best brain state, which yes. includes yep. the ability to be compassionate for ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I be, um, yeah, I'm just wondering, yeah, yep. if there's anybody. So go ahead, and if you want to be on the host line, just press 1, and we'll just unmute one of you and see what you've got to say about all of this. Yes. So go ahead yep. and press 1. And, and we'll we have. Uh, I have unmuted. Okay. Hi, who do we have? Hmm. Hello. Hello, who's, who's joining us on the call here, on the show here? Hmm. Well, well, maybe maybe, maybe there maybe there
0: are no maybe there are no questions.
1: Maybe is there is there someone who's pressed one trying to come in? I don't know how to manage this, Ursula. No, actually, um, I actually
0: think that um, they don't necessarily need to press one. They can just oh, stay on the okay. line, and I have a. I have a hold um, and I have a mute and unmute uh, button okay. here on the screen. So, anyway, just chime in uh, once you've figured out how to unmute yourself and okay. say hello, and um, you know, let us know what you're thinking and what your questions are. We keep going until until you figured it out.
1: Sounds good. Well, you know, here is here is one of the things that I think is is a is a question. It's a question I would have. We've talked a lot about this, so and hopefully everyone's, you know, recognizing themselves and some of their own difficulties. Ursula, how have you developed more self-compassion, and what's the connection you see between that and your maybe state of effectiveness or consciousness? That's a great question, um, he- it's, uh, it really
0: has been a process, um, it, and it's been a pro- process over years, you know, coming from uh, the German uh, culture. It's not been easy for me to um, really put myself first, and that is really what I began to see. It was just sort of like, I think, 10 years ago when uh, when I, I woke up one morning and I realized that I couldn't work, possibly work any harder than mm. I did, and my yeah. internal <laughs> dialogue of saying you've got to do more, you've got to do more, mm. was just downright ridiculous. <laughs>
1: um, and
0: so I, so I started to really ponder, you know, what what would it be like to make myself a priority, and mm. um, and I did. And so Small ways began to really look at um, you know what did I need for uh, for my best self to be, to be present and to show up uh, to be rested to have fun um, to do things in a in a way that really um, aligned with what was most important to me. so I looked at all those things and over time really put some structures into place that really and that really support that. Um, and having mm-hmm. my own business and working from home and being a coach was one of them. It was one mm-hmm. of those decisions. Um, I came uh, from one of my many, many jobs that I had in the last twenty years was uh, real estate. And real estate is really a, a business where you're on call twenty-four-seven. It doesn't matter whether it's Christmas Eve or it's a birthday party or you're just tired. When uh, that pager rings and that phone rings, you better answer it, yeah. and you know you'll you'll be on high alert. And I noticed and realized that it had really had a huge impact on my life, and I didn't want to do it that way anymore. So, you know, it, it, it really was mainly connected to taking care of myself and um, looking at ways to give my body, my mind, my soul, and my heart what it, what it wanted.
1: Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. And I really love how you started this out saying that it, it goes against your culture and your training.
0: Yeah, it was, and you know, from uh, from a, you know upbringing, my uh, my parents, my dad particularly, goodness gracious, was he a hard worker. Um, he really did that. I mean, really, you can say he put his nose to the grindstone and um, never complained. But it was something that I heard as a young kid. Uh, in my you know in my in our household that was the conversation over dinner um you know that hard work would get you somewhere and if you mm. didn't work hard and harder you were a slacker and you know that just wasn't acceptable so it was a bit of a uh, programming uh, you know i had a well yeah. worn neural pathway <laughs> around you know over responsibility and making it as oh. hard as possible for myself
1: oh and you're you know i'm sh- i'm again i'm just imagining people smiling in recognition of themselves cuz you know for you it's german for me it was you know minnesota swedish norwegian sort of the protestant work ethic and you know Mm -hmm. i'm so aware that part of the reason why self compassion is hard is i think we don't quite understand it and it it it, you know looking at it from certain perspectives can feel self-indulgent yes and we're not talking about that i think maybe there's you know There's lots of those self words that I just want to rehabilitate, like (laughs) self-centered. Well, you know, think about it. Centered in yourself. Giving, centered. Because if Mm. you're centered in yourself, you can then give so much to other people as well as receive from them. So if I can't say to myself, and many people, we've, we've done this work in workshops, and you know, it's a really hard thing, I think, for many people to say honestly to themselves, I love you. Mm-hmm. But if I can't say to myself, I love you, whatever anybody else says, I love you to me, it's going to come up against a bit of a barrier in my mm-hmm. brain that says, well, okay, maybe you love me, all right, but you know, I'm really not lovable. So, well, and then there is this whole thing about condition.
0: If we if we don't bring to ourselves this uh, self-care, self-love, and I love that you say reha- rehabilitate self, uh, it's really beautiful um, because there's uh, some huge judgments around, uh, you know, self, the center of self, self-love, self-compassion. We really don't have, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think about it as a well. If I don't mm-hmm. give to myself, this well eventually will be totally depleted, and I have been there. Yeah. I, have, I have been giving, 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 giving to family and clients and husband and parents and friends and home and dog and God knows what else um, until there was nothing left, and I became so resentful that yeah. it had a huge negative impact on my relationship and also
1: on my health. Yeah, and I think that's really well said, because if then we're wanting to give to other people, but we've become so depleted, and this is actually, you know, we can map this process out in the brain. When we give and give and give, don't take care of ourselves, put ourselves, you know, sort of the leaders eat last kind of view um, you know, f- and in certainly moms in many cultures feed everyone else food first, run around, do everything for everybody else, and then if there's a scrap left in time or, you know, whatever at the end of the day, maybe I'll give it to myself. But there's always going to be a, a bigger demand, whether it's job, you know, clients, spouse, kids, etc. So there's nothing left to give me. Well, what that what physically is happening is you're just increasing the stress level and the stress chemicals in your brain. And we've got another podcast around the Goldilocks of the brain where we really talk about this mechanism. And It's a wonderful, you know, if you want to understand that further, just go into our archives um, or look on my um, blog, which is uh, yourcoachingbrain.wordpress.com. There's a, a blog post, to search for Goldilocks, and we talk about that there. Well, so what happens is we get overloaded by stress, the stress of trying to do everything for everybody else without those kind of recalibrating times that we need for ourselves. And then we, lose the, we, we diminish in our ability to inhibit some of our reactive behavior. Mm-hmm. We um, diminish in empathy. We diminish in memory, and so we become profoundly less effective and less pleasant to be around as we're yes, trying up, to give to yeah. everybody else.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, A client of mine, actually, and, and, you know, of course, as soon as we uh, had uh, this topic on uh, the blog talk radio, all my my clients are showing up with something similar. And one of my clients asked a really, really, really good question. She said, so tell me, what's the difference, you know, or not so much what's the difference, but she says, what, what about the duty? the duty that you have mm. to your family, the duty that, mm. you know, she has elderly parents mm. and, uh, you know, there's lots of stuff going on in that arena. She's, you know, and she's a mother of a teenage daughter and she's a, she works full-time, et cetera, et cetera. So she's got plenty on her plate. And she, she really said, I, I, I feel this sense of duty, but I also know that I'm not, I do it, I do it because I have to. And, I, you
1: know, I, there is
0: resentment um, well, I was just going to say, even them.
1: that even that word makes me feel mm-hmm. like I'm carrying a load of bricks. And there's a wonderful poem by Rumi, a wonderful line in a poem where um, that I think about all the time. And he says, "If you are not fully with us, you are doing terrible harm." hmm And for me, yeah, I it love that. To, this really speaks to this place of duty, and I think about there's another classic teaching story where the um, the new acolyte goes into the monaster- monastery, the Zen monastery, and and um, wants to help, and you know says, you know, oh, I'll, I'll wash the dishes. And the the um, guru, the says, the head monk says, no. You don't know how to wash the dishes. You can't. He says, "No, I wash the dishes. I can wash the dishes I'm doing them everywhere." No, because you don't know how to be present and wash the dishes. You actually need to study here for a while before you are allowed to wash the dishes. Wow! And I, you know, and I've—if you've ever had anybody do something for you, with, mm-hmm. out of love. Mm-hmm. You know, think about everybody. Just take a minute now, if you're listening to this, and think about a time where you needed help and somebody did it for you out of pure love. And I, you know, I think about my um, ex-boyfriend who I still love, dearly wonderful human being, and I broke my arm and, um, and I was staying with him and his attitude through the whole thing was you know, whatever I asked, he would say to me, yes, my love, you know, can you bring me something to eat? Of course, my love. And it was this enormous gift I felt nurtured not just by you know having somebody help me get dressed because I needed it at the time but because of the way he did it fed my Mm -hmm. heart yes and so, (laughs) think about that and then think about when you have asked someone to do something and they've done it for you but they didn't really want to (laughs) can you do you have an example of that Ursula
0: well, you know, I think about, uh, about. I actually was saying to the to my client at the time, uh, you know, your teenage children are exempt from this notion, uh, but <laughs> but I, I, you know, but teenage children often, you know, or, or kids generally come to mind. Um, and my daughters now are really uh, have grown into beautiful adult human beings, so uh, you know they've certainly learned. But I do remember when I, uh, you know, needed help either with you know taking the dog out or. Or yard work or something, and you know they would sort of do the eye rolling. Yes, I do it. Um, I often felt that I would then prefer to do it myself, unless it's done with love. It actually didn't feel like anyone did anything for me. It was just like the same burden was in the field. If you see what I mean, the task was done,
1: but it—you know—the task was
0: done, but the energy was. Out of whack,
1: yeah, it doesn't really help. It's like if you have to ask somebody to do it so many times, um, or you know maybe you don't even have to ask them, but they do it resentfully, the resentment lingers, and you can you can feel that versus the um, the energetic field of cooperation, then we can feel that. and we know through multiple things about the brain and the body that we um, have a profound impact on each other. Yes. And even when we're attempting to manage, put a, you know, do something for someone, put a smile on our face, buck up, you know, suck it up, do our duty, that actually um, the elephant in the room is that people can feel it. They, we can feel the difference. We know that if someone is stressed out, it will physically impact the people around them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, If somebody's doing something, we can tell just often by the pace at which they do it or whether there's a little eye roll. Sometimes some of this stuff is, is like with teenagers, it can be blatant. Sometimes it's really subtle, and we're not even aware of it as we're attempting to manage ourselves. But the little sigh that comes out, the little bit of of, um, quickening in the pace all of these that happen when we're feeling resentful, they actually have an impact on the stress chemicals of the people around us. So we can Yeah, because be we can feel... We, yeah, can, we can pick up...
0: We can pick Absolutely. up... We can pick up... Our bodies actually pick up on that um, and will have the same um, stress responses uh, as the person that's sort of generating it
1: so when i think about duty and all of that and i know so many people and i don't you know presume to have the answer for anyone given their situation so please forgive me um but i think about uh well i th- i'll will tell i'll say something honest here <laughs> as opposed to everything else what <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for myself <laughs> you're funny Yeah, well, you know, but I was thinking about, um, I was talking to a friend and they were telling me that they had, you know, spent their, they had, you know, taken six months to help their mother die. And I said, you know, wow, you must have been really close. And this friend said, no, not particularly. And it was really hard and I was very stressed out. And I said, I couldn't do that for my mother. I couldn't have done that for my mother. And this friend, you know, sort of looked at me and said, how can you say that? You know, she gave birth to you. you. Like, you just have to. And I said, well... I couldn't without being resentful, and I wouldn't have wanted to bring that energy. Now, here's the difference. I could do it for my father, because I'm much more present to, at least at the time, my level of consciousness, my own level of awareness, more present to the love, the care, the reciprocity there, um, where if I chose to do that, I could do it wholeheartedly. But I was aware I wouldn't have, and, I, and my mother did die, and she was in hospice, and I was not the one who could have taken her into my home and helped her because it would not have been, um, it would not have been a good way for her to die. The way that she did was better given my capacity at that time.
0: Yeah, no. This better. is a this this is a really really good point. And um, you know, my client and I, we had a conversation. I said, "Well, i I I have sort of trained myself um, into I either do it wholeheartedly." And from love, even the things that are hard. So I want to make the distinction. There are definitely things that we do that's not, I mean, there there are things that I do that are not fun necessarily on the outside. You know, when my dad died two years ago, like I was in Germany, like how often, like five times in five months. And, and you know, I back and forth and I left my husband, you know, at our very cherished Christmas celebration time on his own and all that. So that was not easy. However, it was easy. Because mm. I decided that it was going to be easy. I decided that I would do it from love. I decided that no matter what would happen, I would have fun. I would make it fun, and I would do it from a from a place of loving service, not mm. from uh, not from resentment. So I think there are things that we that we well, have to I? do. Yes, yeah, and go wanna, ahead.
1: I want to say something about that because, you know, as probably everybody knows, you and I are basically, you know, inseparable even though we live in different parts of the parts of the country. <laughs> um, what I remember about that time, and so it's not just the impact on your mom and the impact on your dad, and I know that you had some beautiful moments at the end with him out of this loving space. But what you brought to everyone around you and we were leading and teaching and you were somehow managing to do this all through choice. You you there was no even though your dad was dying, your mother was like needed an operation on a brain tumor at the same time. Yes, r- wasn't yep, there all yep, of at that the, and, yeah, yeah, they were both like, in the hospital at the same time. <laughs> And I think your dog might have been like, you know, d- dying too. You know, your dog that's not, you know, is, might have been having its liver problems. I don't remember. But what I do know is that um, it's not just our impact on those people, on mom and dad, but your impact on our participants, your impact on me. You were drama-free. You mm-hmm. had stories. You had sometimes things you wanted me to witness. But you were not living in this cavalcade of, intense drama that was surrounding you like um, Pigpen's Dust Ball, if you remember from Charlie Brown. You just mm-hmm. did, you weren't because you were in choice. Mm-hmm. And yes. you kept and, uh, looking at, what can I choose?
0: Yes. Yeah and that i think is really um uh, really is a is a is a really really good point that i was really trying to share um with my client uh, yesterday it's like yeah there are things that we that that is if you want to use the word duty that is that but we get to choose from which energy we do this so i want to uh, just check in with our listeners again and um you know you are all on unmute so if you have any questions comments um please feel free to speak this is um this is a moment where we where we would love to hear from you
1: Hi, this is Cynthia. Can you hear me?
0: Yes, thank you, Cynthia. Good to see you. Good to hear you. So, questions, comments?
1: Yes, well, this is so um, perfectly timed uh, right now for me. um, And I'm just, I'm really curious about when you get activated, when you get triggered, in the moment, what, what can you do to shift it? Because that all that happens and then, you know, the, your your brain gets flooded, your your body gets the stress chemicals, and you need to go forward and you want to come back to being present. So can you say a few things about what, what can help you in the moment with that shift?
0: Great yeah, question. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a really great question because you're, you're talking about, you know, coming back to center where, you know, then maybe some self-compassion is possible and it's harder in the moment where you just feel like, oh, my gosh, I screwed up. This is awful like that. Um, well, what we know is that if you can take a moment and actually – well, first of all, breathing. I mean, this is sort of – some of these are these, – this is not earth-shattering, any of it, but it's um, linked to research, so maybe that's helpful – if you simply do the deep, deep breathing, a couple of things. One is that you insert oxygen molecules into your system, into your biochemistry, and they help displace some of the adrenaline and cortisol. Also, if you breathe in and breathe out longer than your in-breath, make your out-breath longer, that... Um, that uh, triggers the parasympathetic nervous system, which is part of our calming down point, um, because we don't do that unless we're safe. Our bodies don't naturally do that unless we're safe. So what you're doing is you're manipulating the circumstance. You're, you know, even though you might not feel safe, you may feel really you know, at risk because you've screwed up and it's going to you know, damage something, et cetera, all of that. Just breathing out longer will help you biochemically start to calm down. The other, the other point is, oh go, yeah, ahead. go ahead, no, Ursula no, goes, no, 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 you
0: go, no, you. Go. <laughs> okay, well, it, this might not be helpful, but uh, what I have started to do, knowing that um, you know, as a coach, it's it's always we help our. Clients, name the emotion because we know that's hugely helpful. It calms down um, the amygdala and brings the prefrontal cortex online. So what I have started to do, if it's possible, and it's not always possible, I've actually started to talk to myself. Mm -hmm. I have actually beginning to say, oh, I can feel I'm really frustrated now oh, I can feel I'm really anxious right now. And you know, sometimes, uh, you know, when when you are in the company of other people, that might not be possible. But I do find it is almost like it's really about naming the emotion. And once I've said it, I feel so much better. I feel so much more centered. So whether it's self-talk out loud or actually saying to the person that you're with, you're with oh, I'm noticing my stress <laughs> level has just gone up.
1: Yeah, because one of the things that happens there, what's really interesting is that it's very difficult to name the emotion from the inside of it. So if you're saying, I'm feeling frustrated, you have to be in a place, you have to at least to some small degree be more in your observer mind which is your higher brain. And not your, your amygdala just sort of knows blah, but your higher brain ne- needs to participate in the conversation in order to name it. And when the higher brain gets activated, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about the other things that activate it, but that releases a chemical that calms down adrenaline and cortisol. It's a chemical called GABA. And um, Dan Siegel calls it the Pepto-Bismol of the brain. It calms everything down and naming the emotion, getting into this, well, how am I feeling? Well, what's going on here? Okay, I'm frustrated. Go into your higher brain, get some chemical balance, like that. Um, Real quick, I'll tell you the other things that we know do this, taking a new perspective, um, focusing on your values, or doing a moment or two of mindfulness will all get you into the higher brain as well and release GABA. Cynthia, was that helpful? What else? What uh, tell us what your take is on that? Yes, that was very helpful. Thank you. Um, now I'm just kind of <laughs> taking breath. <that. laughs> <laughs> now that was that was exactly what I was looking for. Thanks.
0: And and I also think that the more we do it, and this is certainly true for me, the more I sort of train my brain to, you know, my train i 've sort of trained my prefrontal cortex not to leave the building um, as often <laughs> and just uh, hang in there in my body and not leave it and you know so that I can reclaim it later when the damage has been done metaphorically speaking um, the more I do this i 'm really noticing this particularly in the last two years uh, during which Anne and I have really created this neuroscience program and I know so much more about the the brain that I really am noticing that the my 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 reaction and choice gap—the gap between my reactive uh, personality and the, the person you know that really has access to my higher brain and my higher self—that gap has really um, has shortened. That has that gap has yeah. been narrowed. So now yes, it really takes something awful. I mean, you have to really, um, excuse my <laughs> French, but you have to really piss me off for something so that I go away. But I usually come back really, really fast. And that is not true. Mm. That wasn't true even, you know, two years ago. And you, Anne, you know, you probably spent more time with me under stressful circumstances yeah. than most people. Um, you know, I think that you probably can speak to that as
1: well. Yeah. For sure. I've I've definitely noticed it in both of us, and I think this really speaks to the neuroplasticity, the brain's capacity to change, that when we start noticing, paying more attention, being more aware of our reactive selves without making them wrong, without beating ourselves up more, which just adds to the stress, but really do some things to calm down the stress. You know, I think of things like, you know, I used to, I travel incessantly. I travel constantly, and I really love it. But there are times where it's just, even though it's fun, it's all just a bit too much, and I have gotten lost, you know, under the carpet somewhere, Where's, you know, time for Anne? And I will come home for a trip, and what I used to do is I'd come home for a trip. I'd have 35 urgent emails. I would have clients to coach because I was on a plane and couldn't coach them, and I'd be feeling like, oh, my gosh, this business – you know, I need to keep the ball rolling down the field. Well, now that I understand the brain more and have more compassion for myself, what I do now is I say, no, the first thing you have to do is be. You get some being time. You get some unproductive time because if you try to go create anything now, you're just going to make it a mess off your stress level. So let's be smart about this. And if, what you, if all you have energy for is to watch Netflix two nights in a row, do that. If you need to go for a walk, if you need to go shopping, get your nails done, meditate, whatever it is, that's the priority. Because if you try to push through, and I'm a high achiever, and so I have had many years of pushing through, but I've only exhausted myself more. And I don't do that to myself anymore. Um, And as a result, what I've noticed is I'm more effective. I get more done overall because I'm balancing my brain. I'm making sure that it's in this balanced state by taking care of myself. Therefore, when I work, I am sharp. And when I don't work, I'm, you know, relaxing. I'm having more fun with that. Yeah, and it is...
0: It, there's uh, there's uh, uh, this client that, that I was talking to and we were working on, you know, duty versus service, responsibility versus joy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the assignment for her was to write herself permission slips.
1: Yes, I um, love that.
0: To, to, you know, it, because I think self-love and self-care is, is very often about just permission. We yes. need somebody you know, to, that says, no, it's okay that you take a nap now. It's okay that you shut down your computer and you go for a walk or whatever it is. And, you know, unfortunately, there are not enough people out there that give us permission.
1: So, <laughs> right. you know,
0: we need to give it's write your own, yeah. <laughs> write your own permission slips to do whatever you need to do to have your brain be in a more relaxed and, um, and you know, compassionate space.
1: That's great. I think on that note, we will wrap up to go to top of the hour. I want to let you know a little bit about what's coming for Be Above. We have some cool stuff happening. If you want to get in and ready as a coach to dive into this amazing neuroscience and consciousness, all you know, learning tools and techniques for doing a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today, we've got a course starting in Washington, D.C. on September 17th. It's a fast-track mm-hmm. version. It's going to be super fun. We'll do the Module 1 in a day and a half, and then you'll go directly into Module 2, so you really get a pa- powerful weekend of learning. Yeah. And then um, September 19th to 21st, we have Module 1 in California in the San Francisco area. We also have in London, England, for those of you who are listening from overseas, we have a Module 1, again, a fast-track version going right into Module 2. That's October 8th through 12th, and we're going to be in Spain October seventeenth through nineteenth, doing a bilingual version in Barcelona of our executive coaching yay. program.
0: Yay!
1: Yay! 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 That will be so very very fun. Yeah, we're excited about that. Everything is up on the website except Barcelona. If you're interested in that, send me an email directly. I need to get the link with um, the the host group in
0: yep, Spain. And, but, uh, Website is uh, BeAboveLeadership.com. you find all the information there. Thank you, Anne. Please? Thank you, yeah, listeners. Thank
1: you. If you have enjoyed this talk, we would love it if you would share it on social media. It will be archived. Usually that happens within 10 or 15 minutes. You know, So go to the archives on Blog Talk. Share it with your friends. Um, we love the exposure and we really appreciate you. Cynthia, thanks for coming on and playing with us today. Yeah, thanks for your questions.
0: Thanks for listening and uh Uh, go and uh, exercise (laughs) self-love
1: yes and the the other thing i wanted to say is that next time we will be doing once again our very popular ask ann and ursula show and um, we don't have a date for that yet so stay tuned you can find out about that by checking back with blog talk radio in a day or two but i think it's time for another um, advice column of the air
0: Oh, yeah, great. They're, the one, they're one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> okay. Bye, everybody. Okay, Bye, Bye-bye. Take care.